This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Joyous Companions Forever, examining the queerness of the vampire genre, part two. Okay, so... uh... As I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, it is the spooky season. Um, and so we are back this week with another episode in our dedicated Spookathon. Um, now, we've done episodes in the past on vampires in folklore and in film and literature, but there's an angle that we have been saving up. Yeah, if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, you might want to check that out since it's where we set out our stool and establish some basics on the vampires in film and literature as regards queer depictions. Yes, but this week uh, we will continue with how vampires explore gender and identity, coming of age narratives and the link between love and death. So let's... let's die. <laughs> dive in yes <laughs> let's dive in we're doing this let's yes, go in let's okay. do it <laughs> um, starting with um, in some ways the most tricky of, of the three subjects we've got for this episode uh, is the gender and identity one but i think when we've explained ourselves people will, will see our perspective on this hopefully yes. um which is that vampires are liminal creatures they are both dead and alive both predatory and victims themselves and mm-hmm. um, in many cases both male and female and neither they really as we talked about in the reproduction and uh, sexuality segment of last week's episode um, they tend to embody both male biologically male and biologically female values and yet neither at the same time yes Um, this tends to actually make them a great vehicle for discussing gender and identity yeah Um, becoming a vampire removes one from the limitations of being human being alive and to some extent from being forced to conform to a traditional gender identity Um, it has also been used to explore ethnic identities too but for the purposes of this episode we're sticking very much to the queer angle yes Um, now vampires are default bisexuals in the original meaning of the term so they show attraction to multiple genders um, and display many gender identities within one being without ever having to settle Yes. Um, and as we've said before, a lot of this this kind of, you know, inverted commas coding is actually, you know, unconscious or it's unintentional, etc. Although not always, as we will get into. Um, but I do think this makes it a really interesting one because um, an aspect of working, you know, an aspect of discovering who you are as a person just generally without adding any of the more difficult, as- you know, elements of, to it at all. Mm-hmm. Um it can be, it can it can come from a place of, of trauma as yeah. well. And vampires are a great metaphor for, uh, you know, it's the idea that trauma makes a monster. Mm. So, you know, you start off being a victim and then you become the monstrous thing that attacked you. Um, it, it's a great vehicle for exploring that. Now, if you add in identity with that as well, as in I used to be this and now I'm this monstrous thing that lives on the... The margins of society as I knew it mm. um, you've already got a recipe for the whole identity issue yeah so um, a really good example in terms of film is let the right one in 
this is the 2008 Swedish version. It's based on a book, I believe, and I think the book has a couple more unsavoury aspects that maybe the film doesn't really get into. Mm. I haven't read the book, so I can't say. Um, and there is a, I believe it's a 2000 and 2012, 2015 remake of the Swedish version, but quite frankly, the remake, as entertaining as it is, dumbs down a lot of the stuff that's really interesting about the Swedish version. So honestly, if you're going to watch one, watch the Swedish version, get the subtitles. It's an interesting film. So okay. have you seen it? No, I have not. Okay, well, I will give you a brief summary. There is, you know, it's set in Sweden in the 19th, late 1980s. Mm-hmm. And the main character, um, whose name has now completely gone out of my head, is a boy who's very badly bullied at school and his father doesn't really pay attention to him. So he struggles with um, the other children who kind of don't like him because he's poor, because there's something just not quite right about him. Mm. And then he finally makes friends with um, someone he assumes to be you know, a young girl of about his age mm-hmm. uh, called called Eli. And he's sort of ends up spending lots of time with this girl, although there's something a bit odd about her. There are times when she smells strange, kind of disgusting, like something's rotting. Mm. Um, but he s- sees her caretaker um, as someone who's like his own father, who's negligent, who isn't really paying attention. And so he feels a kinship with this girl. Yeah. Um, later it will transpire that the girl Eli is actually a vampire (laughs) so spoilers guys sorry about that spoilers is actually a vampire a a child who was turned as a vampire who was prior to being a vampire actually a castrated boy right Um, and there's even a point where you know he's the the child in quite the the main character is hugging Eli and Eli is saying would you still like me if I wasn't a girl and the boy goes, well, yes, I suppose so, but not in a sort of, like, grudging way, just kind of like, well, I haven't really given it any thought, but you're you, so, yeah, of course I would. Mm. And they have this really sweet sort of pre-romantic kind of relationship. They're too young for any of that, but but it's kind of like the nascent early stages. Mm. Um, as it turns out, the, the little boy sees her caretaker. I mean, sometimes she's her, sometimes she's he. It, it switches through the film. Mm-hmm. And it's very noticeable that when she is interacting with the with the main character, she is quite soft and nurturing and comforting and um, presents in a, a more feminine type way. Mm. Uh, but when she is angry, when she is shouting at her caregiver, inverted commas, um, her voice becomes deeper and huskier and she throws displays of strength in in ways that we would consider more typically masculine. So mm. this is a character who slides up and down the gender spectrum. Yeah. And quite honestly, human sexuality doesn't really mean anything to this character anymore because they're no longer human. They are, in fact, a vampire. Yeah. But they were changed so early in their, their life that um, basically they can't hunt for themselves. So they have to attach themselves to someone who will commit murders for them so they can feed on fresh human blood. This is where it starts to go a bit, oh, okay, yes, it is a horror story. Yeah. It's not just a sweet story about a child vampire and his pal. Um, so the little boy kind of discovers the, her caregiver um, murdering people and then realises that this friend of, of his is, is actually a vampire as well as being 
not really male, not really female, not really mm. identifying as either. And, and it goes on from there. And you think, oh, God, this is going to have a really awful ending. And in some respects, certainly for the, the vampire's assistant or ghoul or whatever, um, it does because he is getting old. He says it himself, I'm getting old, I'm getting slow. I cannot kill people and catch them the way I used to. I'm going to get caught. Um, so she is very clearly, or they are very true, they, she, he, again, the pronouns, it doesn't really matter, they, they kind of identify as both. Um, I, uh, basically looking to trade up the food chain for a much younger human. Mm. And yet it's not just that, it's not just a typical vampiric manipulation of a vulnerable person's um, feelings. There is a genuine love and kinship between the two. And it's messy. And in some ways, it's kind of messed up. But the little boy learns who he is by this friendship with this vampire child. Mm. And the vampire child finds, you know, more shreds of their own humanity by, in in a way, kind of falling in love with this this little boy. Not in a mm. sexual way, but just in a I love you as a person kind of way. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting film. Um, what the remake has done has made it very American. It's very definitely a girl right from the beginning. There's mm-hmm. none of the castrated boy stuff. There's none of the questions about gender and everything else. And it's very, it, it's kind of played as a very straight horror. Right. So it's not that it's a bad film. It's just like, this isn't the story. You've you've kind of made it more suitable for an American audience, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I have to be perfectly honest here, in the book I understand that the original caregiver for this child vampire, this child vampire is not a child by the way, he, he, they have been alive for a long time, Yeah. Um, is actually a paedophile in the book. Right. So let's not say that everything about this little this little film and story etc is good. It's not played like that in the film but in the book I understand that is the case. Yeah. So leaving the book aside. <laughs> <laughs> If we're taking it as just a film where it's a case of, no, this is a vampiric child who cannot hunt for themselves, who attach themselves to someone who will be able to hunt and kill for them Mm. so that they can feed and stay alive um, and not rot, (laughs) Um, then you do have this interesting question of horror, the monstrous um, gender identity, um, but also personal identity when confronted with the monstrous and where you fit in. And it asks a lot of really interesting questions. Um, It shows a messy but very fervent and real relationship and friendship. Um, And it doesn't answer all the questions either, which I kind of like about it. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm I'm not sure I have the stomach for it, but um, it's certainly very interesting. <laughs> it might be a little too much into the horror oeuvre for you to really thoroughly enjoy. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you want to give it a try, give it a try. <laughs> um, I've also talked about Woman Eating Before by Claire Coda, which is a book mm. I read earlier this year. Um, and this is a, a young woman who is a vampire. She was turned as a baby and then somehow grew up when... It's never explained why, and you kind of think that maybe she might be delusional most Mm. of the way through the film. It's not overt queer in terms of the actual text because she gets obsessed with a man Mm -hmm. um, who is taken, and yet she doesn't behave really in a way that we would typically call female. We Mm. might, or or even male, or anything like that. We typically call her uh, what she is, you know, a vampire predator of some kind. Yeah. 
um, someone who is instantly starving herself because her mother's only ever allowed her to eat pig's blood, which, by the way, is not easy to get hold of. Don't believe Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Butchers have... You have to have a licence to purchase quarts of blood. Yeah. It's very difficult to get hold of. Um, so, yeah, she's hungry. She's been living off blood sausage, which is no substitute. Yeah. <laughs> and when she finally caves at the end, it's kind of a commentary on who are you. Um, she gets a flavour of human food by by drinking human blood. Different types of humans suddenly give her all the flavours she's been missing from her life, mm. which in itself is quite a queer metaphor as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, uh, let's move on to coming of age. Yes. Now, um, as we said previously, vampires make the perfect vehicle for exploring uh, sexual awakening, um, among many other things. (laughs) Definitely. So it's little wonder, then, that they should appear so frequently in coming-of-age stories. Yeah, so um, things like Twilight and the earlier Vampire Diaries books look at this very issue. The way that, as teens, we all at some point experience a period of time when we are isolated, even alienated from everyone around us. Mm -hmm. And there's an easy parallel with queerness right there. Yeah. There's this sort of this moment when you realise the fairy tale version of reality isn't real, or that you don't belong there. So in self-defence, you go through a transitional period of not believing in fairy tales. I remember this stage very clearly for myself, the sense that no, actually the universe isn't magic. Yeah, it's not there, or it's not for you. Ergo, the best thing to do is to ignore it and not believe in it and be kind of cynical. Yeah, which is uh, dangerous in some respects. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And quite but, sad, actually. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I, you can kind of understand how vampirism sort of then comes in, really. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a kind of knock-on effect of, of this sort of age of not believing, to, to use the Disney term, which actually always sort of stayed with me. But, yeah. Um, the knock-on effect is that when you're given a glimpse of something less ordinary you kind of fall for it like a ton of bricks Um, you want to join those others you see a place where you can fit in yeah yeah absolutely so in a previous episode i did threaten to talk about twilight and i'm going to do it very very briefly (laughs) um i'm also not going to summarize twilight because i'm pretty sure that you kind of know the main plot points unless you've been living under a rock because it's that big Um, yeah but a recap of the pertinent point here is that at the end of twilight it's left kind of on a note of expectation so we would call it a sejura if we were talking music there is a pause in 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 the melody yeah Um, and that kind of says everything and it the reason it feels slightly unsatisfying is that edward says isn't this enough isn't this enough for you? And Bella says, it's enough for now. But what she really wants is to belong to his world, to join his family. Yeah. She knows from the beginning that's what she wants. So at the beginning of uh, New Moon, when things go horribly wrong on her birthday, and I really sympathise because as a teen all the way up into my late 20s, things would always go horribly wrong on my birthday and it would always be like the worst day ever. So I got to sort of dreading birthdays. So I understand. I see you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nobody tried to murder me on my birthday, though, I have to say, which is what happened to Bella. And it's yeah. an accident. It's just a case of she's bleeding in a room full of what are essentially land sharks. Yeah. Which is very unfortunate. Um, and it makes Edward think, if I stay with her, I'm going to end up killing her, or someone I love is going to end up killing her. Mm-hmm. The best thing, the healthiest thing to do is be the adult, which is really patronising, but still to be the adult and to leave. Mm. And of course, Bella has been dealing with rejection of one kind or another her entire life. She's always felt she had to earn her way with her mother. She's never felt she fitted in with anybody else because she's got this really old head on her shoulders. So when Edward, who she'd kind of really trusted in and loved, leaves, um, it really fucks things up. Yeah. So that that's where we, we come in, sort of, like, second, third chapter of New Moon. And then you have, like, four chapters of the months passing where there's nothing. It's just January, February, March, etc., or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you didn't really have to go into a big description of the depressive state she's in. You just... Nothing. There's nothing except the time passing. Yeah. Which, again, I think most of us who've experienced depression at some point can really appreciate. Yeah. Um... People complain about Bella sinking into a depression when Edward leaves, and I feel they've kind of missed the point, because, yes, she's upset she's lost her boyfriend, whom she loved, um, but she's also had the door on that fairy tale other realm slammed in her face. So she's always been living in this place of, I don't believe in it. Yeah. And then suddenly she's been shown it, and it's somewhere she could belong, where she wouldn't be alienated and kind of an outcast in her own life, and then it's all taken away from her. It rejects her. Um, yeah. And it's like her own life has rejected her. So, you know, I kind of defy anyone not to fall into a deep depression over that. I really do. Yeah. It. The problem is that you, you can't look at it just in terms of, oh, this was a relationship at 17. Because I think most of us had relationships at 17 and, you know, or, or sort of around that time. And we didn't completely fall apart when they, when they didn't go through. In fact you know I know some people who basically just sort of got on with it fairly quickly yeah um, most teenagers at that yeah, most teenage relationships go for oh god I want to die and then two weeks later it's like that new person is super hot kind of yeah. thing and that's normal yeah perfectly normal but the the fact is that it isn't just about the relationship with Edward it's the relationship with herself, with, with, with the family, with identity, you know, all of these things all tying in. Um, and, and yeah, and as you say, this kind of actually, this door on that fairy tale realm being slammed in her face after she's for the first time allowed herself to feel that hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you can understand why so many twihards, to, <laughs> to use the appropriate terminology, um, were actually queer people. Because even though there's no obvious queerness in the Twilight books, and you know that wasn't what Stephanie Meyer was writing, she was writing about being an outcast, being alienated, uh, feeling like an outsider, and then finding this family where you could belong, this community mm. you could belong to, where you wouldn't just be awkward and trying to get invisibly through life but you could actually shine um which i think is something that most queer people can really sort of identify with yeah yeah i completely agree and also the the fact that it's it was not only that but it was also a group of people who 
could not show themselves for who they really were. Yeah. But who then, with the right people, were able to be themselves. Um, and who and who were traditionally seen as dangerous, despite the fact that they weren't. Yeah. You know, I think that that spoke to a lot of people as well, particularly during teenage years. Definitely. Um, I'm going to take us on to the, the Vampire Diaries, and I'll just give you the brief outline, because if you're going via the Vampire Diaries and the TV series, then we are not talking about the same thing. Yeah. I, I don't love what they did with the TV series. I think they were trying to piggyback off Twilight and it is a completely different story. Yeah. But The Vampire Diaries, on the surface, seems like a really simple teen concept. So you've got the uh, beautiful heroine who everybody wants to, you know, all the girls want to be her, all the boys want her. And then you have the the dark, handsome stranger who comes to her high school um, as a student mm-hmm. and uh, he has a he has a tortured secret kind of thing. I mean, obviously it's Stefan and he's going to turn out to be a vampire. Yeah. The problem here is Elena, Elena sorry, is really drawn to Stefan. Um, and Stefan's drawn to Elena, but for reasons that become apparent later in the book. It's not just about wanting to eat her either, which is good. Yeah. Um, but there's other characters in play here because Stefan has gone somewhere and his semi-abusive older brother has followed him and it turns out that the two brothers were both in love with the same woman 400 years previously. Right. And they haven't really grown up since then. Um, This other woman, Catherine, uh, was a 16-year-old girl who had been very sick as a, a... you know, as, as a 16-year-old girl and almost died. Mm-hmm. Um, but her nurse had gone into the village and managed to find a cure in the form of a vampire who came and changed her. Right. So she, when she goes to stay um, in, in Italy with... In, in Florence, in fact, with Stefan and Damon's father as his ward, um, Stefan sort of falls for her like a ton of bricks. She's beautiful and luring and mysterious and very sweet at the time. Mm-hmm. And then realises that his brother is also falling for her. And this is not a good love triangle. This, you know, the brothers have never got on. This really puts a serious issue in place for the two of them. Yeah. To the point where Catherine then leaves them and realises how bad it is being the two brothers fight so badly um, that Catherine leaves a note and then with her white dress which is filled with ashes saying that she's killed herself so she will never be a, a point of strife between the brothers but she hopes this will bring them together yeah. which is clearly a really stupid plan um, because the brothers are so angry and grief stricken that they fight worse than ever and they both kill each other with their swords <laughs> unfortunately they've both done enough blood exchanges with Catherine that they both wake up <laughs> in the Salvatore crypt <laughs> Oh, and it's right. like, oh shit, we're both vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of go their separate ways, except that both of them are kind of keeping tabs on each other. So when Stefan goes to um, Fell's church in, you know, in, South- in in Louisiana, basically, I think, or it's near there, um, and meets Elena, of course, Damon's not far behind, meets Elena and sort of falls for Elena for the same reasons that Stefan originally has. Mm-hmm. And you've got this historical love triangle reenacting itself as well, and Elena very much in peril, the human, um, in between. And it 
it's interesting for many different reasons. Obviously, there's a lot of wish fulfillment going on there. I think it yeah. might be one of the earlier examples of the teen love triangle dynamic for a start. Uh, but let's, I mean, if we talk about, you know, by contrasting Bella, who's, you know, a, generally a good person, but shy and wants to kind of get through life invisibly because she knows she doesn't fit in. Elena goes the opposite direction. Yeah. So Elena in L.J. Smith's Vampire Diaries, again, gets that glimpse of something other and is fascinated by it, but she doesn't specifically choose to cross that line. So um, let's let's bear in mind that, you know, she's she's kind of got everything going for her. Yeah. Um, she's basically, she meets Stefan and she finally works out Stefan's secret and she does fall in love with him and she's still sort of adjusting to the fact when external pressures kind of force her to cross the line into the other. Um, I don't really want to spoilify it in case people want to go and read these books because they're actually, in my opinion, better than the series, although some of the stuff is a bit dated now. Yeah. Elena wearing hair ribbons, for example. <laughs> not impossible, but not likely. Um, so, yeah, she's definitely been flirting with the idea, but both she and Stefan kind of want to find a middle ground where a human and a vampire can be together without either one changing the other. Yeah. Um, ignoring the, as I said, rather bloodless TV series. Ha ha. Uh, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> the books are, in fact, all about identity. Elena, Elena is a queen bee. She's beautiful, popular, desired and envied, but she's also lost in her own life. So this immense popularity and desirability has been used as kind of camouflage for the fact that she's still aching with grief over the death of her parents sort of three or four years before. Yeah. So she's not quite 18. Um, and she's sort of wondering, do I still want to be this person? I'm more than this. I'm not a frivolous, vacuous person. I pretend to be, but I'm actually really, really intelligent. And I I want more out of life. I, I want that special shimmer. And Stefan kind of provides that special shimmer for her, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, and Damon too, by extension. It sort of shows her that life can be a sensual, immediate and important thing rather than something that's just painful and has to be got through. Um, and that she can be selfless even to the town that rejects her. And that's the really interesting thing. Elena falls for Stefan and the entire town, for one reason or another, rejects her because they believe in small town fashion that Stefan has murdered somebody. Right. Someone starts a rumour, etc. Um, and so... Elena becomes an absolute pariah, which is an unusual position for her. She's crossed that line. She's now with the other, even if the town doesn't know he's the other. Uh, so by extension, she's tainted. And yeah. instead of folding, she just goes, well, fuck you then. I'm where I want to be, which is, you know, an amazingly laudable thing to do. And I'm not sure I know many people who at 16, 17 would be able to stand up to an entire town for the people who do that. Yeah. No, honestly, I don't think so. I don't think um, I know that many people hate that. Yeah, so, uh, and in the end, she does something amazingly selfless, which is kind of like, uh, we're talking about the original trilogy. If we follow the following books, they get progressively more batshit crazy. <laughs> and I kind of wish LJ Smith hadn't written any more and had just left it how it was, but there you go. Um, I'd also like to mention the theme of polyamory here as well, mm. because what Catherine wants, um, her basically Stefan and Damon originally say to Catherine you've got to choose one of us 
it's either one of us or neither of us. And Catherine makes the third choice, and she says both of you. Um, so she goes to Stefan first and exchanges blood with him, and then the same knight goes to Damon and exchanges blood with him. And so both of them are kind of like waiting to hear her choice, and she's like, I choose both of you. We will be joyous companions forever. And the brothers are like, we don't want to be in a polyamorous relationship with you. Yeah. <laughs> we won't share. Of course, the same thing then happens again with Elena, because Elaine, there's part of Elena that Damon can reach that Stefan can't, and the same with Stefan. She's a better person when she's with Stefan. Yeah. So once again, it flirts with the idea of polyamory, which is something, again, I haven't really seen very much of in young adult fiction, even yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So, next, The Lost Boys. Yes, the Lost Boys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is an absolute. Well, it's an absolute classic. It's a 1987 film, and if you say the Lost Boys to most people, they'll be like, "Ah, vampire film, one of the best ones ever." And it's all about coming of age, challenging your sexual identity, and the whole idea of teenage alienation. Yes. Um, it's interesting that Michael, who is the character we follow first in the film gets involved with a Santa Carla gang initially because he's taken with the sole woman in the gang. You know, Star is beautiful, wary, and intriguing, and she also warns Michael over getting involved. So you could argue that she exists to kind of be the lure. Yeah. Um, but the real kicker is that Michael is actually properly seduced into drinking vampire blood, okay, albeit by manipulation and trickery. Yeah. That scene of, <laughs> they're maggots, Michael. <laughs> Do you want maggots? And it's not, it's rice. Yeah. And they keep making him see things that aren't. And then when he's offered a bottle of wine, Star's like, don't drink it, it's blood. And Michael's like, yeah, yeah, you've had me twice, I'm not going to believe you a third time, which is how he ends up drinking vampire blood from a bottle. Yeah. Um. Anyway... It's this seduction is David, the gang's leader. It's really interesting that David is the one who decides they want Michael in the gang. Mm -hmm. David is the one who goads Michael, um, who Michael wants to impress. There's the, the whole sort of very adrenaline and oddly sexually charged motorcycle race along clifftops, for example. Yeah. Um, the very fear that David inspires appears to also be an adrenaline rush for Michael, or maybe even a turn on. Yeah. And, you know, Michael and David are both played by beautiful young men. Um, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, David, has an almost ethereal quality in the film. And there is a strong sense of tension between them all through the film that both violent men, you know, that ha you know it has both of these, these very violent men jockeying for position vibes and sexual undertones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, depending on how you're, you're viewing it, some people go, okay, cut that sexual tension with a knife. And yeah, you could argue it is, because there is a parity between sex and violence. Yeah. As we know. Um, David eggs Michael into more and more dangerous behaviour. So there's the part where, you know, after drinking the blood, well, he still doesn't know it was blood. Yeah. Um, they, they're on this railway bridge, and they all jump through the slats and Michael's like what the fuck kind of thing and then David shows that he's hanging underneath the bridge yeah. by one of the, the rails and says come on Michael you can do this and it's that 
again, it's that seduction. Here's something dangerous. Here's something cool. I do actually want to be accepted by these guys. So he jumps through as well. And then, of course, a train comes and the vibration of the train makes it very difficult to hang on. At which yeah. point the other gang members are all laughing and letting go and falling into the mist below and Michael's desperately trying to hang on sort of like fuck I'm gonna die kind of thing and all you can hear is David's voice coming up going let go Michael you're one of us and then of course Michael wakes up in his bed and thinks okay that was a seriously trippy night maybe there was some drugs in that wine yeah (laughs) seriously so, I mean, there's some serious stuff going on there, but the whole let go and you're one of us is kind of telling. I also think, you know, the director, Joel Schumacher, is an openly gay man, and I think a lot of this is probably not entirely accidental. Yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree. Um, and people have criticised how the film then progressed, but I think there's a certain sense to it. David is everything beautiful and seductive, but he is also a murderer. Um, you know, predating on the other residents of Santa Carla with his gang. The different life he offers comes with a very high cost. It's something that looks like sexual freedom and reveling in otherness, but actually it isn't. You know, David has offered the first sample of a drug and Michael learns he has to pay for the rest. Yeah. I think it's where the main criticism comes in, is the way Sam reacts when he discovers Michael is a vampire Um, let's bear in mind that Sam is at home Sam's a bit younger, Michael's about 18, maybe 17, 18, and Sam's about 13, 14 so, you know, there there is a world of difference between 14 and 18 in terms of maturity and in terms of what you're thinking at the time. There's also the brother dynamic where it's like the older brother's like, come here you little shit Um, that, that kind of thing, which you'd expect um And Sam's in his room and he's speaking to his mother on the phone. His mother has just phoned because she's gone out on a date for the first time in ages after the first time in ages since the divorce. And she's just phoned to check that Sam's okay and Michael's keeping an eye on him, etc, etc. Yeah. And then Michael floats past Sam's bedroom window. (laughs) And of course, Sam sees him and he's clawing at the window to get in because he doesn't know how to control this power. He's like, okay, something's wrong with me. Shit, I'm now floating. (laughs) Fucking floating. (laughs) And Sam obviously starts screaming. And of course, their mother's like, oh my God, oh my God, what's happened? And she runs out of the restaurant in order to drive back to get to them. At which point... Michael's like, no, you've got to let me in. You've got to let me in, Sam. Sort of in a panic. Am I going to fly up to the moon? Am I going to die? Yeah. And Sam's like, I can't believe it. My own brother, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. And a lot of people took that as your brother's just come out as gay and you've rejected him. Yeah. I would like to point out that first, this is the 80s. Secondly, yes, that's not the best reaction if it was supposed to be a gay metaphor. But on the other hand, you present someone with some knowledge that completely changes how they look at the world and you genuinely expect them to completely adjust their entire worldview in less than five seconds, because that's potentially kind of, particularly in the 80s, that's kind of um, unreasonable. I'd also like to point that five minutes, within five minutes, 
Michael, it's like, I'm still your brother, Sam. I'm still your brother, and I really need your help. And Sam's like, okay, God, okay, um, you better not bite me or I'm telling Mom. Which is a line that's played for laughs. It's not about outing Michael as such. It's, it's kind of like, this is literally the only power I've got as a younger brother over an older brother, is to say, I'm going to tell my mother, because I know my mother will side with me, the younger brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So, yes, I do see the criticism. I just don't really um, agree with it. I also think that, you know, yeah, while there is definitely a coming out as a vampire, coming out as a queer person um, parallel there, um, and, you know, the, the, the whole vampire, I'm a vampire thing is kind of a good um, metaphor for, for coming out anyway. Mm. I don't think that's entirely what's going on. We have to remember this is a sort of campy horror film first and any queer commentary is kind of second. So in that instant, it might just be that Michael's like, yeah, shit, I'm a vampire. I didn't realise I don't know what to do. Help, what the fuck do I do? Yeah. Uh, rather than that, actually, I think I might be bisexual when there's very definitely bisexual vibes going on with the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, I think the way you would react to someone literally floating past your window and turning out to be a vampire would be kind of... It's reasonable to have five minutes of doubt. Yeah. And to be freaked out. Particularly yes. because the, you, the other thing you've got to recognise is that as far as Sam is concerned, his brother has become something that kills humans. And he is a human. Yeah. So it's like, even if you take that as an extended kind of queer metaphor, it's like misinformation in the 1980s meant that he could have posed a danger and he needed time to adjust his set. While it's not great, it's also not a crime to be wrong and then to change how you think about things. Yeah. So anyway... <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's then noticeable that Sam devotes everything to helping Michael break free of David's influence. Not, as some people say, because he's got a real issue with his brother being a vampire, because it's more a case of, okay, you're a vampire, but I still believe you're a good person. But more in a case of, no, you're kind of in an abusive relationship and we should do some shit about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um... So we we then discover that there is a master vampire who is actually above David, who is actually running the vampire gang. Um, and in a delightful bit of found family parody, we discover that the reason Michael was targeted was because this vampire lord had his sights set upon their mother and wanted them all to form a family. Yeah, I love um, that so much. <laughs> yeah, and she steps up. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you know, when there is no other way to protect her sons, she's actually willing to become his bride to stay with her sons, um, to essentially cross into the other. And I, you know, if we're again taking this as extended queer metaphor, which I don't think it entirely was, I just think, you know, some queer themes crept in because yeah. 1980s and also gay director. Um, and you know, he cast two beautiful young men, so I wonder how he wonder how he entirely could have not got some of this in there um 
But the fact that he's got the mother there who is acting in a very atypical fashion, she's not rejecting her sons for what they've been up to, which they've been trying to protect her from, quite frankly. She's kind of like, okay, well, if you're on that side of the fence, then I'm crossing over to join you because I care about you more than anything else. I think that's an amazingly supportive statement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And again, it's something that speaks to the queer experience or what we hope which is that parents who perhaps you weren't sure sort of what line they were you know where they would fall if you came out to them saying well no even if it makes me an outsider within our community I'm still coming uh, I'm still going to openly be on that side with you yeah absolutely so anyway, there's a reason The Lost Boys is a classic. You can view it just as a straight horror vampire film. You can view it as through queer lens. Um, it does what every great coming-of-age story does, which is that it examines that liminal stage between being child and adult and how that affects your sense of identity and yeah. self-worth. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to rephrase that? Because uh, see what's coming. Yeah, let's see what's going this like. Uh, so let's get into the next section, uh, which is uh, blood, sex, love, and death. <laughs> yeah, let's get into blood, sex, love, and death. Is uh, it doesn't quite uh, sound right? Um, okay, so the genre of vampire tends to go all in. Um, to feed in that very sexual manner often results in death. The relief depicted after the feed is that of having a very different need met. And the desire for blood is described as lust. Yeah, in short, in most vampire fiction, all of human pleasure, both good and bad, or, you know, depending on how you feel about stuff, is encapsulated in a vampire doing what it does best, and that is feeding. So sex, drugs, food, love, intimacy, nourishment, alcohol, beauty, art, violence, all of it is there. Now, the very deviancy of the cultured vampire is underscored by their aesthetic appreciation. The fact that, like the Lenanshi, they are drawn to talent, music, art, and beauty. Yes, here is a creature which is so decadent that it will listen to Chopin while draining a beautiful young human to the dregs. Yes. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that dressing well and having a beautiful home, appreciating art and music and poetry is the sole province of queer folks. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) but it it has been used as coding for LGBTQ plus people in films and books for decades. It's a stereotype, but not one without basis. Um, uh, And if you could have a vampire that was into baking, um, it would pretty much complete the picture. Yeah, in fact, I'm sure somebody's done that somewhere. (laughs) Somebody somewhere, probably, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, what does it mean in queer terms? Is it merely window dressing as part of a long seduction that results in the victim's death or turning? Well, that is the question. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think I mean, if we're going to just look at this point on its own for a moment, I think mm. the idea... Honestly, if you're going to live forever, why would you not become interested in more things? Because 
you know, forever's a very long time to get bored of doing the same stuff over and over. I agree. And I think also that... Um, this is going to sound pretentious, but if we, if we look at Mill, the philosopher Mill, John Mill, yeah. um, he had this concept of basically um, uh, utilitarianism and there was higher utilitarianism, there was kind of lower. So, and there was this idea that sometimes um, you had to give more for certain things which would cause a greater net happiness over time. So for example, learning to play an instrument might be miserable to begin with and might require lots of sort of effort and things like that, but the overall pleasure which would be earned from it over the long period was greater than the small miseries of trying to learn it. Um, and one of the big things that kind of tied in with that was basically the devotion of time and effort and things like that. And it's interesting to me that, of course, the one thing vampires tend to have in abundance is time. Yeah. Um, and time also loses when, you know, if you, as we see with a lot of immortal characters, you know, things lose perspective. And so if you do have time, um, you are more likely to, first of all, engage with things which are going to be challenging in the long run and engaging in the long run, and which you then can kind of ultimately enjoy all the more. And and the arts, particularly um, the sort of uh, the classics and things like that, tend to be up there within yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I do feel like that is a part of it. Um, there's also this idea that, you know, over time, the building of wealth and things like that, all these things tie in with one another. And if you are immortal um, and you start to kind of give yourself airs or you have kind of airs sort of thrust upon you, you do start to sort of go within certain c circles where you basically say, um, you know, if I'm going to, I've got to basically reprioritize what is good and what is bad according to myself. And so there is this greater concentration on what society has typically seen as, seen as superior. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also the idea that you're carrying mannerisms and mores and things from other times and you maybe haven't quite adjusted as quickly. Um, I agree with your point about the fact that if you live forever and you haven't at some point worked out an investment strategy, you're, living, you're, you're doing immortality wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because if all you've got is time and you don't exactly, you, all you eat is blood. Yeah. So you go out, you hunt, you find it. It's not like you're spending everything on quiche. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> A lot of quiche. It's got to go on something. Um, the other aspect is that, yes, you're far more likely to lure people in and to, you know, you, you find meaning in your endless existence through hobnobbing with artists and poets and scientists, etc., uh, philosophers as well you're far more likely to draw that sort of person into your social circle if you're not smeared with dung and wearing sackcloth and ashes yeah so um so and yeah some some of it is just the practical sort of carnivorous flower thing where you're attractive to your prey yeah but i also think another big thing is that if you look historically at some of the greats um they were outsiders in yeah. their time 
Absolutely. And so there's is also they were outsiders, they tended to be more open minded, etc. Um so if you are also someone who lives on the outside of society but still within polite society, you're going to end up rubbing elbows. I mean regardless of what you think of him, Byron, you know. Yeah. Byron was not exactly, you know, <laughs> Mr. Number One in society, but at the same time, he was, you know, um, 1920s, it was full of people who were kind of rejects who were on the outside, whose artwork, you know, and ideas and stuff have now basically been, you know, immortalised. Yeah. So when you do see a vampire kind of listening to certain music, you might think, well, at the time when he was first listening to this stuff, he might very well have, you know, been... This might have been an outsider. It might be a very different experience. It's the whole sort of, I liked them when they were still niche sort of thing. (laughs) I liked them before they were cool. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, Yeah, we also need to discuss the whole idea of impressionability and turning here, inverted commas. Yes. Um, It's long been a fear that queer people, if given access to young people, and I don't mean in a dicey way, I just mean sort of like in a social sense at all. um, Yeah will turn them gay. Uh, this is obviously a very harmful idea, but once again, it is it is reflected in the vampire genre with that sort of like, yeah, that beautiful seductive person over there is a problem. He will turn you into one of his kind. Yes. Um, completely ignoring the idea that actually, um, in a lot of these things, it's not actually the the, the person who's turning them. The, the thing that is the, the turning point is the desire for that change. Yeah. Um, Obviously, Though that's nobody... not been done, <laughs> depicted, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> but... no one turns anyone gay. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's what I, that, I, I obviously yeah. recognise that. But what I'm saying is that there is this, that we start to see a little bit more in modern kind of stuff, is this recognition that, um, as with, you know, Bella, for example, um, she was not, she was literally transformed into a vampire, but um, basically she having the knowledge that that was an option it was her choice it was something that she pursued because it was where she found happiness it was where she found belonging and self and worth etc yeah exactly um but no what i was saying and i wasn't suggesting that you 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 didn't know that no one turns to the ask game yes is, is the idea that you know meeting people who have similar experiences to you makes it easier to categorize your own experiences and be open about them so i mean it's not always as simple as you just know um yeah uh, one of my friends who's gay um it was it was an awkward thing i love this person very much i don't really see very much of them anymore but you know genuinely love this person one of my dearest friends um but I remember him saying to me, look, you just know. You say you don't, but you just know. And I found that troubling at the time because I thought, you know, this is this is way, way back when I was like 17. But even at the time, I was like, that might be true for you. Maybe you, you have always just known. But I hmm. don't think that entirely fits like the broad spectrum of experience. Um, and I, I still feel that way. And, you know, maybe he would think something different now because obviously he is now no longer 17 either. Yeah. Unless he is in fact a vampire and he has been holding out to me. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time. Um, <laughs> yeah, um and I would agree. 
uh, there is something to be said about knowing that something is a possibility and therefore also understanding that sort of your own thoughts, your own experiences and stuff like that. Yeah, having some context for the stuff that you haven't been able to make sense of because you don't really fit in one particular box. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, back to genre vampires. Their freedom to exist on the margins in ways that appeal to young queer people tends to make them a good vehicle for exploring that too. But also for looking at the dangers of getting involved with someone who is older, more powerful and far more experienced than you. Yes, absolutely. Which, again, is has historically been a problem within the queer community. Um, to be honest, across the board, but yeah. yeah. across the board, but yeah. Um, in fact, there are dangers in sort of pretty much any love story, or every love's lust story. Uh, whether that's of being deceived, getting hurt, or something worse. You know, it's Bluebeard all over again, but this time with seductive fangs. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the real risk, ultimately, is in equal amounts of influence and autonomy in a relationship, something which, uh, you know, a vampiric entity can be used to explore. Yes. Um, so I will finish off with three examples of that, which I won't go into too much detail of, because I believe I've recommended all three of these at some point, but I do mm. just want to mention them um, in this context. So there's Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson, which is kind of a retelling of Dracula, except it's from the first bride's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, in this retelling, there it's not three sisters or a mother and two daughters, whichever. It is um, this this dark vampire lord kind of collects people he finds intriguing. So he collects the first bride, and then he adds a second bride sometime later. He's got a little bit tired with this dynamic by itself with the first bride. Mm. Um, The weird thing here is the the first bride is kind of very... She's both jealous of his his being enamoured of this second bride, but also really wants her for herself as well. Yeah. So you and and ultimately you you end up getting this polyamorous relationship. Um, the problem is this this dark vampire lord moves them around a lot and keeps control over them all the time. Um, it, this is clearly a very emotionally abusive relationship that wears both of them down, and yeah. which is why they finally in the nineteen hundreds add I think it's Alexi who is the the male bride if you like that they add to their collective who, right. again, doesn't do very well under these stringent terms of emotional manipulation and um, control, etc. And then, you know, violence comes into it a little bit. So this is a very long metaphor for a domestic abuse situation. And mm. it's really interestingly done. Um, it's told in one long sort of episodic, epistolary fashion, uh, yeah. a letter from the first bride to her lord explaining that she never intended to kill him. It's just that that's how things panned out in the end because they couldn't live with him. And then you finish off with this coda where the three of them go their separate ways, except every so often they come back together and they still have this this strong polyamorous connection. It's really interesting. I'm not sure it 100% works, but it was a very compelling read and I kind of liked the slant it took. Hmm. 
That is very interesting. Uh, particularly because it really does use the whole vampire experience to explore inequality in relationships and um, how things can be exploitative. And obviously it was yeah. very, very queer as well. Um, then there's The House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson. And this is a case of a, a very poor young woman um, manages to escape the, the slums she's living in by having blood of a very particular rare flavour and going mm-hmm. to work as a, um, inverted commas, blood maid at one of the noble houses. There's all sorts of houses, but the House of Hunger is where she ends up um, with the the beautiful mistress, who she kind of form, falls in love with. I mean, there are five other blood maids there as well. Um, mm. This does not flinch away from the problems of anemia, that if someone is regularly drinking your blood and you're not being given time to replenish it, you're going to be tired and sickly and worn down, and eventually you will die. Um, And once again, it's looking at an abusive relationship dynamic, because basically the blood maids are kind of employed for a set term of years. After that, they're given a huge stipend, apparently, and allowed Mm -hmm. to go free. And it's such a huge amount that it would set them up for life except that this mistress kind of manipulates them all into falling in love with her into sort of competing a a bit against each other and she does love them as well as far as she's able to Mm. um but ultimately it's her hunger the fact that her family curse is this unassuaged thirst for blood (laughs) that um (laughs) that dominates her you know it, it genuinely that doesn't really make her a great person and obviously it turns out that actually no one can think of any blood maid who was retired and given her stipend who is actually still alive anywhere which is a little bit odd now they've come to think about it (laughs) so um once again tapping into the vampiric themes of constructed or found family and um unequal relationships um addiction actually and getting free of those um, damaging scenarios Mm. interesting one definitely leans more towards the horror and then there's the final one, my final example is Lian Yutan's um, out and out lesbian vampire (laughs) horror book The Wicked and the Willing um, which borders on BDSM in places (laughs) as well (laughs) but also talks a lot about things like, I mean it's set in uh 1920s Singapore and mm. the young human in this instance is is a young um, is a young woman from that background um, whereas the mistress is a white woman who has moved to Singapore and she's been alive for hundreds of years yeah so again we're talking a very unequal relationship and how this this young woman um, of, of Singapore origin ha- is kind of being exploited, and several before ha- have been exploited to the point where they, you know, unfortunately they've died. And and the um, the woman who acts as the servant for this particular mistress is like, okay, I'm I'm not going to get attached to you because you're going to end up dead like all the rest of them. She thinks she can tr- control herself, but she can't, and I'm going to mm. end up taking your body out to the swamp to get rid of it Um, yeah and yet against her will she starts to fall for the young maid as well um it's a very dark story if it's a romance at all it's a very dark romance and uh 
I, you know, read the author's... I'm not necessarily one for trigger warnings, but I would say if you're going to read this, read the author's page of trigger warnings first, just to check there's nothing on that list that's really bad for you. Yeah. Um, It is a very interesting take on the whole scenario, though, and as a a metaphor for exploitation, both within relationships and in in unequal racial situations, um, it's very interesting. Also nice to see more lesbian vampires out there. Carmilla style, <laughs> just out the wind, outside the windows, just waving. Well, hopefully not there, but no. <laughs> I'd have a lot of explaining to do. Uh, okay, so uh, I mean, I guess we should probably sort of, sort of wrap things up. But I mean, do you have a favourite queer genre vampire? Uh, I think I mean we've talked about so many of them, but I mean I. In terms of, I really love The Lost Boys as a film. That's kind of very formative. Um, I love Anne Rice's vampires. I'm more into her witches, but I love her vampires as well. So Lestat and Louis and their messed up dynamic. <laughs> um, the fa- the thing with Lestat and Louis is that when you get into the next book, where Lestat's kind of like, no, a lot of what Louis wrote was really hurtful, um, and yeah. it wasn't entirely accurate and he told lies about me I'm going to set the record straight and then at the end of the vampire Lestat they both meet up again and they still love each other they just can't live together and I kind of really like that it's like no we had this messed up relationship dynamic I still love you I'll spend a few days with you but we cannot spend our immortal lives together because we are going to kill each other again yeah again (laughs) Um, and also eternal love for Dracula as well (laughs) yeah I as you said, you know, we've talked about a lot of them. Uh, one I haven't mentioned is from a series I read ages ago called um, Tsubasa Reservoir Chronicles, which was... It's it's a series uh, by uh, Clamp, who... And within it, there is this, this duo. Uh, essentially, it, it follows these four characters. There's a young sort of teenage boy... Um, and a and a young teenage girl and the boy and the young teenage girl basically has had all her memories scattered across um, different dimensions and in order to survive they need to go and get her memories back and they've and these memories have been basically have taken the form of these feathers and they're scattered across different dimensions yeah and so the uh, this young boy who has, has always been in love with her is basically going on this journey to try to go across these worlds to gather as many of these feathers as possible and he um and uh, and the price for that is basically her memories of him so he's in love with her but she will never remember him and he's joined by this chirpy wizard who's just basically saying yeah i'm, I'm just want to go on this this journey um he's from another dimension as well and it's very clear he's running away from something. And this misanthropic ninja <laughs> who has been sent there by his master, his master was like, you're way too violent. Um, you know, you don't need to deal with everything by killing people. I'm going to send you on this journey so that you learn some self-restraint. And so he's basically going to be jumping through all these dimensions um, because he's try- hoping that eventually if they keep, he keeps jumping through dimensions, he'll find his way home. And so it's this weird dynamic of the four of them basically all journeying together, and they become this family. 
um, with like these two dads, essentially. Um, and they, you know, they get very, very close. And there is this relationship that develops between the, the two adult characters um, where they seem to be very opposite, but the ninja um, Kurogane basically starts to really see that Fai, the um, the wizard, is uh, running away and that he's got a hugely guilty conscience. And when at one point, and that he keeps putting himself in dangerous situations like he wants to die. And then when he does almost die, um, they have this choice, which is they can save him by turning him into a vampire. And Kurogane is the one who says, yes, I want you to do it. He, he's not awake. He can't consent. He probably wouldn't want it, but I'm, we're going to save him. We're not going to allow him to just die, um, to run, keep running away. And I will take the, um, and I will take the responsibility, which is that I will just feed him. Um, and I'm not sure, I can't remember whether it was specifically that Fai can only drink Kurogane's blood, or whether he can drink anyone's but he's only going to drink, but I think there is basically this bond where essentially they have to form this reliant sort of relationship one on the other. Where he's basically saying, well, I'm the one who's forcing him to live now and transform, and so I'm also going to be the one who basically has to pay for that by having him feed on me. And it's this very interesting thing because it's never 100%, you know, confirmed that they are in this queer relationship, but the it, it's, it is there at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it's this very intense emotional kind of relationship between these two people who don't always do the best things for each other, but who actually end up bringing the best out of each other by challenging each other. Cool. So it's quite an interesting one. So yeah, I, I mean, I think we've got to the end of our vampire episode. I still feel like there's so much we could talk about, but um, we are going to have to cut it off there. As always, though, we're very interested to hear what our listeners think. Um, you know, who are your favourite queer genre vampires? Do you agree with what we've said? Do you disagree? Do you think we've missed something out? As always, we love hearing from you. Yeah. Now, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got another one for us this week. I have. Um, this is this is a proper horror one, okay? <laughs> I'm not making any bones about that. It's called Episode 13. It's by Craig DeLuey. And I have mm -hmm. to admit, I went into it kind of thinking I've heard I'd heard such mixed reviews I kind of thought I might not like this so I might just not finish it and damn it it drew me in it did things that I generally don't like I'm not a fan of epistolary generally I'm not a fan mm -hmm. of found footage type things not without a, a, a strong supporting narrative and yet mm -hmm. it got over all of that um, basically, the premise is that you have uh, six people who mm -hmm. are part of one of these TV paranormal investigation series. The series right. is not doing very well, so they want to do something really explosive for episode 13 of the show to Naturally. try and get themselves back on track. Okay. <laughs> um, so they go to the most haunted house they can find. And initially, nothing much really happens. And then when things do happen, they really happen. It's a house where uh, something like three or four people went before and just vanished. Mm. And okay. 
the only thing that was left was some strange occult symbols on the walls and uh, a lot of useless papers that seemed to have been written by people going off their going off their heads completely. Right. Um, the leader of the group is such an idealist. He had an experience as a young child with a a a girl who was a ghost who he thought was his imaginary friend and then when he told his mother about her, it turned out to be his mother's sister who he hadn't known about who had died in childhood so he'd right. always felt that you know the truth was out there very fox okay. molder and he desperately wants to prove to the rest of the world that there's something after death and that you can take comfort in that um, obviously gets a lot more than he bargained from this whole thing his wife is an absolute skeptic and mm-hmm. she wants to prove things scientifically that nothing is there or absolutely or paradoxically that something is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have a cop who kind of lost his job when he encountered a demon on the job and no one would listen to him. There's also right. an actress who kind of doesn't really believe in any of it, but, you know, this is paid work for her. It's steady and she has a child to support. Um, there's a cameraman who... It's kind of like a voyeur on everybody's life. Okay. And someone else as well. It's a really interesting mixture of characters. I have to say, there was at least one point in this where I was genuinely creeped out. And I think that's because it isn't a typical ghost story. It is a proper horror story. Um, It uses ghosts as the vehicles, but it's not a case of... The ghosts aren't there in a very liminal sense. The ghosts, when they are there, are very there in a very horror way. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason it managed to push a okay that's genuinely creepy button for me <laughs> it's really good it's a great audiobook it's, it's a full cast performance um, which I think okay. helps to really sell the you know the, the found footage sort of style of things okay <laughs> uh, so when the creepy music starts playing the creepy music genuinely starts playing which is kind of cool in the end I really liked it I do recommend it if you're looking for a spooky read and you don't mind actual horror go for this this is cool this asks some interesting questions about life, death and how much we should be monkeying away with it all (laughs) okay I will definitely have to sort of consider that though (laughs) it sounds like it might just be a little bit too much for me (laughs) oh Okay, well, on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. We hope you are enjoying the spooky season, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.